Welcome to You Hear It First, an unofficial, unfiltered history of MTV News. I'm Benjamin Way. For much of its 36 years, MTV News was where young people everywhere got their news first. And from 1996 to 2014, I had a front row seat. These are the stories behind the stories from the people who told them. This is You Hear It First. If you caught a 10 to the hour, every hour MTV News Brief with Kurt Loder, John Norris, or Chris Connolly sometime around the turn of the millennium, chances are it was written by this week's guest. Today, Elon Johnson leads development for Tyler Perry Studios in Atlanta, but in 1999, she was one of just a handful of MTV News writers tasked with scripting daily news briefs and packages. This week, Elon shares her journey from Barbados to Brooklyn, Def Jam to the source, and finally, to MTV News. She breaks down day-to-day operations in the MTV newsroom and talks about bumping into Busta Rhymes, getting tight with Christina Aguilera, standing in for Little Kim, championing Alicia Keys, breaking news on Aaliyah's death, and fanning out on Cindy Law. born in Brooklyn. My parents are from Barbados, so I had that very immigrant experience in New York. And then I went to a private school in upstate New York. So I was, I came out of the city only to then go back for Columbia, right? I'm always curious about what's happening in people's households. Like, did someone love music? Did someone love the arts? Was there someone who fostered it? Yes, I had an uncle who was really a music aficionado. It was not one specific genre. He lived in Flatbush. He was very close to me, um, more like a father even than an uncle. And this is from the time when I am preteen to teenager, right? I spend a lot of time with him and he had invested in this, music system that was in the living room that was just like high quality. Uh, like he got all the music magazines. We would go to JNR Music yes. and I would tag along with him and learn about all the equipment. And he's spending thousands of dollars in the 80s and 90s. Like this is unheard of in yeah. Flatbush or anywhere because no one has that kind of money. But he was doing that because that was his thing. Yeah. So I just remember, you know, growing up, it could be a John Coltrane night and he was just going to like take me through it. And he and I would sit on the sofa together and he'd make me close my eyes and he'd make oh, me hear great. the things. Yeah. And sometimes at 13, I wasn't excited about this, but I'm so glad I had that experience because then it could go from Metallica. He was a big fan of Metallica. And so the sound of that was so robust in the space, right? And here I am, 14, in the most Caribbean part of Brooklyn, and we're listening to Metallica, right? So that was my experience in music. And he would always make me cassette tapes of everything. So I still have them. They're in my garage to this day. Who were your artists? What what songs did you love? What artists? I was very much into hippie hip hop, right? So Uh I was De La Soul all day. Tribe Called Quest. Like 
I loved anything in that space that was like very meaningful, very peaceful, um, very rhythmic. So I loved Native Tongues. I was like, Daisy's drawn on my jeans. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that was really the thing. You know, we also just had video music by. So any of the hip hop, like I was very much a big hip hop head because I'm in the Mecca, right? So, yeah. and then my parents played a lot of British R&B. So I really loved like British soul uh-huh. music. Yeah. So it was a lot, a lot of, a lot of medisage of music yeah. at that time. My experience in terms of music and pop culture was all things because I was in a lot of different places. But growing up at that time, I feel like in the 90s, there was just so much to dig into, so much to be excited about. So I was interested in getting a PhD and becoming a cultural anthropologist, not being in pop culture at all. And my last year, I ended up interning at Def Jam. And then that led Uh, to an internship at the Source magazine, which then led to a job there. And that's how I got into the industry. Right as I graduated, I started at the Source and it was like a um, editorial assistant. I was working for Elliot Wilson. Elliot, as you may remember, was in business with Andrea's husband. Uh, right. And Andrea was writing for the magazine. Andrea had spoken to him and was saying that we need to fill this position for a writer in the news department. And even though I was working for Elliot at that time, he said, I feel like this could be a good opportunity for you. Uh, that's cool. And it sounded absolutely amazing and fascinating. I just remember Andrea being very integral in setting things up. And the funny story that I always tell is that even though I was working at the source at the time, I wasn't making any money. I don't even think I was staffed. I had such a cute apartment in Fort Greene. I loved living there. Common lived down the street. It was a great time to be in Fort Greene. Lots of cafes, lots of events, but I was struggling to pay my $700 rent. Right. And this is 99. And what ended up happening is after Andrea had sort of set everything up, Chris Connolly is the one to call me to interview me, right? Because he's in LA at this time. Yeah. So we set this thing up and it's like, I have to call Chris at a certain time to have the interview. I did not have long distance <laughs> on my phone. <laughs> right, totally. 99. I call my mother and I say, mom, there's this big opportunity. I need you to do a three-way call for me. You cannot say anything. You have to put the phone on mute, do whatever you can. And I have to have this interview with this man who's on TV. And I am too poor of a post-college student to afford long distance. Oh my gosh. What do you remember of that call? I mean, and by the way, did you knew who Chris was? Had you had you grown up watching MTV? At Columbia, we had all these monitors in this very big, elaborate lunchroom. You'd watch MTV, Ricky Lake would be on. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I remember all these things. So I mean, I knew who Chris was, and it was still kind of like shocking to me 
that that would be the person that I interviewed with, yeah. right? So there was a little bit of nervousness, a little bit of anxiety, but at the same time, being a New Yorker and having gone to Columbia, I'm living through a time. I'm at Columbia from 94 to 98. I'm hanging out with most death. I remember I shared a suite and I came home from class and Buster Rhymes is here, but this is very <laughs> early, right? So, and it's New York and yeah. Stretch Armstrong had a very popular radio show out of Columbia, underground radio show. So we got a lot of New York mix in, right? So I'm not like fish out of the water. Like I said, Common lived down the street. I had an entrance into celebrity, but Chris was different because Chris is like the official voice of something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I loved about the job description, which I remember from Andre, was that it was not going to pigeonhole me into one thing. It wasn't like we needed a hip hop writer. It wasn't like we needed the R&B writer. It wasn't any of those things, which was what I was doing and I was fine with. But it had opened up this world where I was really feeling to get in there because it was like, oh, I get to do all the things. I vaguely remember the conversation, but I do remember that he had asked my musical and pop culture interests. He had asked about my background. And I remember instantly feeling very, very comfortable talking to him. So everything just like went away. I don't know what my mother's phone bill was like. Because we talked for a long time. You know? it, it's great. <laughs> Do you remember the the first day, the first week, those early impressions? This was a time where I felt like Times Square was turning around to be more right. tourist friendly, yeah. right? Because yeah. I had grown up with it being very seedy and it not a place that yeah. you had gone to. And then when I was in undergrad, I feel like we would go to Times Square every once in a while, but not so much. So here I am now going every day to 1515. And it did feel like a whole new world. It felt very big, right? Because everything is, it's literally this pop culture beacon, right? Like it's like colorful. It's like animation. It's so impactful visually. Yeah. So I think I started on the 29th floor and it's just like everything was so like futuristically cool. You know what I mean? Like it was just like you get off the elevator, the hand railings are silver and there's maybe a neon light underneath it. And it just felt like we were on to something. We were so far ahead of things. Yeah. And it just felt like this is where I want to be. Who do you remember um, working with on the reg and what were some of those early assignments? Andrea would have been my initial connect because Chris is in in L.A. and he's coming back and forth at this point. Kara was there. Bless her. Kara Manning. And then, you know, there was a slew of producers who we also worked with. Sherry Skorka was one of my, you know, first close friends. Edward Page and I worked together Uh, a lot. Leanne Sue was there. Jim Frankel, who I owe so much of a producer eye to because he was just amazing. Um, Darren Byrne, Greg Kaplan. What might be some of the shared attributes of some of those people? Like, what did we have in common? Being so young, we had some sort of intuitive perspective 
identifier and ability to tell stories about pop culture and just a genuine interest in it. And at that time, I think we were all open. I know I was open to learning about whatever else was going to come under this MTV News umbrella. Right. I always think about MTV News, like because of all the perks, right? I'm going to Fiona Apple concerts. I'm going to Incubus concerts. I'm going to Lily Allen concerts. I have access that I probably wouldn't have had before. So I'm having these experiences Um, And because we predated the sort of blogging and literally I was thinking about the importance of fact checking, right? Like how that was a thing for us. We were the place. We were the voice for people. We were the vehicle for the voice of celebrity. It's a very big responsibility. Yeah. And there's got to be trust. And we were, and I think everybody kind of sort of had that integrity. And maybe it's just because we were all young and open-minded and fresh-faced and willing to learn. And super duper passionate. Absolutely. Two of the early stories I remember is Britney Spears breaking her knee or leg, Uh. something like that. And that became my story. And Strangely enough, I was like, why is this a story? (laughs) She hurt herself. But then I started digging into it because this is early Britney, right? And this is at the time where the cold is starting. So yes, if she hurt herself, this was a story. So it would go from something like that on a Tuesday to us doing a long form news and doc special on Colin by my right, first right, six right. months in there. Oh, you know what gosh, I mean? Yeah. So it was a lot, but I remember as hard as that was, I remember thinking, I am so glad that we do this and that we're not just like bubble gum and parties, right? So it was 100%. very, very important important that we had the youth culture coverage too. What do you remember of the process? We really functioned like an on-air news department, right? So we'd come, the writers would come in, but there would be pitches in the morning, right? So it's like, this person has a new album coming out. This just happened. And we'd all pitch and then a lineup would be made and we'd go and write those stories. And then in the early afternoon, then we would produce those stories and they'd break into, in the interstitials, the 10 to the hour. That was at the very, very beginning that I remember. But then I remember we started share on air, started sharing resources with online. Yeah. We were all sort of throwing things into the pot, right? Yeah. Um, and deciding what we were going to do. And so a lot of my news came from firsthand experience. I was four days out of the week outside. Yeah. I was at Tuesdays, I was, was at listening parties. Thursdays, I was at movie premieres. Wednesday, I was at this person's event. Monday, it was so and so, we're all meeting up for a dinner with Brandy and her mother. Like, I was outside out. yeah. every night. And then I'd come in and be like, this just happened with X, Y, and Z. Or, you know, so and so sat next to me and they told me that they had, they're working with 
this producer and that producer on their new album and I could go with it. Of course they knew, right, that I was going to go with it. It wasn't like yeah. shady business, yeah. but I had gotten the scoop from being on the ground. So that's where a lot of my information came just from being outside. Yeah. And then um, when we didn't have stuff. I remember I would dig in the online pile a little bit more and say, what else do you guys have? What else do you guys have? Because we need something, right? So that was the, just the reads, right? But now if there was picture attached to it, that came from whatever interviews that we did. So morning, you have to get your stories out, but Wyclef and the Fugees may be coming at four o'clock and you're going to interview them. And, you know, you have all the questions. Someone else is doing a special and they need you to ask what's their favorite Christmas song. So you throw those in there that'll be used in the special. That's perfect. So I did so many interviews that first month. I remember, and I was heavy on the pop girls, Christina Aguilera, um, Britney, Pink. We'd get them in the studio for an hour, shoot it, and, and then chop it up and use it as we may. And and so those were the two main ways of us dispersing the news throughout the day. I love that you identify the import of shoe leather journalism. Like I was out. Exactly. And that was a thing. At that time in the early 2000s and New York City and MTV News being what it was, I had like just like this open access to a lot of things and people and further the evolution of technology. I always think about the two way pager, yeah, right? Yeah, well, yeah, that yeah. came. That changed the game, right? Because then it was like it was just like this novelty and it was the transmitting of information so quickly. For us, interviewing these artists every day, it was a direct connection. Oh, give me your two-way. And we'd like beam it and stuff like that. I'd get a lot of information that way as well. In those early days with the pop girls, what was a great moment with one of them? I think it was my first MTV Awards because we used to do the pre-show. So that was another thing. We used to do the pre-show. So it was like all of this prep up until we would have our different hosts. And one year I had Lala and I think that was the, that was the time Christina Aguilera was there. And I remember that we connected because I had interviewed her before. And I just remember it wasn't anything that crazy or significant that happened, but I remember us being like feeling like friends, right? (laughs) Because she was about to go on and she's like, Elon, you know, can you hold, you know, this whatever she was like drinking or whatever and producer mode you do that like yeah. it's like hurry up the time's going it's always very exciting and it was just that familiarity and it was different from the day to day because I had never done the awards yeah, and the sure. awards were even like glitzy and glamour on steroids <laughs> from our day job right so and the day job is already like glamorous but you're like you get used to it so it's like the lights and everyone looks beautiful and everything's moving so fast and we're all at these different points and we got to make sure we're hearing each other and that as soon as they cue her Lala she's gonna interview Christina I also remember playing little Kim as a (laughs) stand-in but that's funny explain to non um, MTV years or non-television or film producer people what it means to be a stand-in and what like what what would you do in that context 
the talent doesn't come until closer and, do, and does their actual rehearsals and marks and stands in the places that they'll be so they can be properly lighted. But before all of that, staff does it. Yeah, we do. <laughs> I had the pleasure of standing in for Lil' Kim where she would have been on, I don't remember if it was the pre-show or the actual main show, but I did... I did the high voice and I did, you know, I was literally, I was getting into it because that's the thing, you know, if you're, if you're a stand in what the camera and the producer is trying to see is what it may actually be like if she's there. Right. So you can't just act like yourself. You got to give them a little something. So I was just, you know, we were, I don't remember who was interviewing me, but I was pretending to be little Kim. And of course, we were actually rolling. So (laughs) it was actually recorded. And then it was in a special where we did down the line. It was like behind the scenes of like, you know, one of those one hour specials of what it's like to make the TV awards. Yeah, I had a little debut. Was it at Lincoln Center or at uh, the... Yeah. So it would have been the year that she wore the dress in which one breast was covered with a pasty. Was it that year? Yes, it was at Lincoln Center. But I didn't do that. Because I didn't know that was going to happen. Right, because it was before. So it was that year because I remember... It was Connelly. Chris did that interview. So maybe it was me and Chris. It definitely exists out there. Um, I wish I could find it. I, You know, I have a bunch of beta tapes in my house. Of course you do. (laughs) It's great. I love it. Hey, it's Benjamin. What with hybrid work, heightened performance expectations, global unrest, and economic flux, there's a lot to manage. Most of us need all the help we can get. My company, Essential Industries, is a boutique coaching and consulting firm specializing in individual and organizational transformation, content strategy, and collaboration. If you, your team, or organization needs help creating or communicating effectively, facing uncertainty with confidence, or leading meaningful transformation, visit benjaminwagner.com or email me at benjaminbwagner at gmail.com right now. I'd love to help. Now back to the show. What was one of the first stories you remember championing? Alicia Keys. Back in the day... Record labels used to send these samplers or maybe a single with a couple remixes on it. And I got Alicia Keys and I, you know, we got so much product, so much music every day. But something told me to listen to this and I did. And immediately I was like, she's amazing. Yeah, And so... Literally unknown, unknown at this point. And I remember going to our good friend, Mark Doctrow. Uh, Doctrow, yes. Doctrow was the leader of the You Hear It First. Aha, yeah. You Hear It First was when we would basically pick a deserving artist. You would literally hear them first, right? We feel like this artist is going to blow. So here it is. We're putting this in front of you. We may do, it was a package, really. It was a quick 
two minute package or something like that. But we might go to the studio with them. We might go with them as they're doing like an indie performance, but we would do something with them. So you got to see a little bit of their life, get to know them in this quick, you know, two minutes or less and hear their music. Yeah. So Mark helmed you here at first. And I remember I was like, Mark, Alicia Keys, Alicia Keys, Alicia Keys. And we got to do a You Here at First on Alicia Keys. So I got to do the interview. And I don't remember, I feel like I went to Connecticut with her for a performance, to shoot a performance. I don't remember exactly what we did, but something to give us a taste of her life, right? Because she was this New York girl, still very, you know, I don't want to say the word unpolished. I want to say raw, right? She was this New York girl, still very raw, but she just had these amazing vocals. I remember loving them because no matter who it was, you knew that whatever it was, it was good, right? Like it was good. I remember Pink. I like, it's just like these people who became huge stars, but us seeing them in this very infantile state it's yeah. just like at the at, before the beginning of it was just so good what was it like writing for kurt and john and company i would just listen to what kurt said listen to how chris spoke listen to how john spoke and they were all very different working with john i knew his scripts were very straight to the point. If he was going to finesse something, he was going to finesse it himself. So you didn't have to add anything in there. Like he'll add his ad lib or whatever it was going to be. Kurt, if you get three words, you have (laughs) done the damn thing. You are an amazing writer if he kept three of your words. (laughs) <laughs> that's so great that's you know mancini spoke to, to that to yes. some degree as well it's so true it is yeah. it is but what i now what i know you know because at first it was heart-wrenching it yeah. was like oh my gosh i'm gonna lose my job because yeah. i just handed over this script and it's something completely different but the way kurt worked was he needed to take what you had and make it his own. That was always what it was going to be. Nothing personal. That's who he is. And if you look at his history and who he is, he doesn't need anyone to write for him. You know what I mean? He just needs the information and then he's going to put it into his very, I want to say he's literally the, was the voice of MTV news. Right. So this is a thing that no one else could do anyway. So that, you know, so how he delivered it was going to be what it was. What was one of the most excellent adventures you took during your time there? At one point, mixtapes had become a very huge thing, right? They were hot on 125th Street, which is just a train ride up from us, particularly for hip hop. People were into the mixtapes more than they were into the actual artist's album, right? Because mixtape DJs were becoming so big that they were getting these exclusive drops, the exclusive freestyles that you could only get on this DJ's mixtape or this DJ's mixtape. But what was also happening with this was copyright infringement, right? Because they were using music and they were selling it that they couldn't, right? Because it's mixing all this popular music that belongs to some record label, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was a big thing. So my good friend, Edward Page, decides that we should go undercover about these mixtapes. So 
we did all the research in advance. I'm seeing what's going on. I'm looking at what's going on on the street. What is the story with these mixtapes? Is there going to be some suing going on? It was becoming a big thing. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so we go to 125th Street. I blend in on 125th Street. Edward does that. I mean, on top of everything else, he's like six foot nine, right? <laughs> And he also has a camera with him. <laughs> it's like a full-on cannon, whatever we were using. <laughs> we, like, get off the train, and we're like, okay, he mics me up. The whole thing was for me to go and buy these, basically, mixtapes that you shouldn't be able to buy on the street. And so I was across the street, mic'd, and he was all the way on the other side. And he's like shooting me purchasing mixtapes on 125th Street. Oh, man. And that was part of our story. Um, you know, it was like an investigative report. Yeah, yeah. Very Dateline. Yes, it was. But it was just so crazy because I remember like I kind of went into this like acting mode because I had to like act. Yeah, ask yeah. certain questions, right? And like, I remember I had to like be like this CD, yeah, right. so that I could like zoom in on it from across the street. And I feel like his story across the street was like he was scouting for a movie. I feel like that was his story because we had a he and I had this whole thing down. One time we went to DC, Washington DC, for. NBA All-Star, mm -hmm. and it was all these amazing things going on. And Sean Lee was like, I can shoot everything. I can shoot everything. And Jane was like, okay, you can go with Elon and Mornique, who was the producer that came in at that time. So we go to D.C., and it's like maneuvering. Mornique was from D.C., so she had a, like a big end. So we get a Shaq interview, and this is huge yeah. at this time. I should have known it was doomed from the beginning because as soon as I get to, get to interview him, I go to shake his hand. Then his feet are this big that oh, yeah. as I'm going to shake his hand, I like kick over his feet. I'm like scuffing his shoes. I'm like, oh my gosh, so sorry. Anyways, he's still super gracious. Yeah. We get this amazing interview with him. We get back. No. Sean never pressed no. record. Oh. Never pressed record. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Is that the worst thing that happened? Breaking Aaliyah's death. That's probably the worst thing because, again, here we're going back to the two-way pagers. Yep. And that's how I found out. It was a friend of mine in the Jay-Z camp who knew a bunch of the people on the plane, yeah. and she was like, oh, my gosh. And so th this is the trauma, right? Like, you get this text. And you're not expecting that kind of news. And I remember at that time, I literally am devastated as a fan. Yeah, yeah. And as someone who had just interviewed her, because I did the last MTV News interview with her. So I recently interviewed her, devastated as a fan. It doesn't make any sense. And no. then at the same time, it's like, now my job kicks in, right, right? right? So it's like, I have to get the story. Yeah. 
So I think that was one of like the most difficult things. And we managed it. I mean, we, we definitely got it on air. We broke that story and left eye too. But Aaliyah was different because I knew so many people between Aaliyah and Aaliyah's camp. And then my friend that was in Jay-Z's camp was also in Usher's camp. So they were all like intertwined. So that one was way harder because it felt so much closer. You never knew what was going to happen. And most of the time it was inconsequential or it was exciting. But either way, the fact that your pocket was vibrating all the time, as we know now, isn't, isn't great. I can remember Dave just being like, when this Diddy story, it was when he was on trial. He's like, when the, the verdict breaks, you guys need to publish it within one minute. Do you know what I mean? It's like, so you had to be on pins and needles for the story to break to try and beat everybody. Or when in the middle of the night, Clarence Clemens passes. Just the amount of um, uncertainty that was just part of the part of the deal. And that way you guys saved us because there were times where we had to break on air. But if we could go out digitally, we wouldn't have to break in. Yeah, we'd still be first. Right. So that was one great thing about the companionship between us two. And I remember that person always speaking of John. I remember that person always being John. I just. Yeah. John Morris. Yes, because it was just like the poise of being able to. Literally, I was thinking, I feel like, you know, having to get something on air so quickly to the point where, like, I'm probably still telling prompter, Addison, put this last sentence in because we're going like this. And John is up there like he's had the story for days. Like he was the true, like the consummate professional and just literally like amazing in that space. What is one of those like pinch me WTF kind of moments that you can remember? I got to meet Cindy Lauper at the Statue of Liberty. And I think that that was probably one of very few times that I fanned out because yeah. this was literally like from like 10 years old. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm like, oh. And she was so gracious and she just, she was so kind. I wish I remember the movie it was, but we were going to a movie premiere. It was on Ellis Island and I had the opportunity to interview her. And it was like, that just sealed everything for me during my time at MTV. That news, it was really a big deal for me. Well, and given your family coming to America, I imagine that's a pretty special spot to do anything. It definitely is. It was just an amazing event for a movie premiere. It was very lavish. And, you know, so, yeah, it did. I I love that you made that connection because it definitely was a big thing. Dave is the Lorne Michaels of our Saturday Night Live. What kind of Srolnikisms did you experience, if any? I always admired Dave because he was this movie star looking (laughs) right? He's very handsome and he just always was so immaculately dressed and and like he just always felt like a true leader in that space, right? Like we had a lot of things going on. We could be casual, we could be creative, we could be funky, we could be all these things. But at the same time, even while he was this sort of figure that clearly defined leadership in the company and particularly in the department, he was accessible. 
And that was a thing that I really appreciated about him. It was very important to him to talk to everyone. You know, he was always someone that might ask, what are you listening to? What is this? What should I know about that part? And then there were times where, like, we talk about the hard things and the bigger things. And you mentioned Diddy. And I guess Diddy was a favorite of Surrealnik's because I remember probably one of the first times I was called into his office was because we were going to do a special call, No Way Out. It was the Diddy trial because I remember I went and shot down. It was the Diddy trial. And we were doing a special on that. And it was to be taken very seriously, as most things were that time. Fact checking and us getting the facts correct was so important. And I remember being called into Dave's office and it feeling like very important, you know, and and him being involved and wanting to know what our plan was, not telling us what to do, but yeah, saying, okay, yeah, then if yeah. this is what it's going to be, I want to make sure you guys are have this, that, and thing. So I really enjoyed the ability to have worked with him yeah. over the years because he was just there for so long. And I, even after leaving MTV News, I still worked on d- different shows right. in MTV. You did Alexa Chung with him, right? I did Alexa Chung, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I would definitely still, you know, and he's not, it does not forget who you are and things no. like that. So I always admire him as a leader. I have just great things to say about him. That was just four years of a luminous career that continues. What sort of things did you pick up there that you bring with you? The biggest thing is that I transitioned more from a writer to a producer while I was there, right? So as I came in literally as a news writer and left having had the ability to produce shows and then further along after that, becoming a showrunner and now and then going into development as exec, I attribute a lot to the path of getting to know what it meant to be a producer to Sherry Scorker, to Darren Byrne, to Jim Frankel, to Mornike, because it wasn't competition. It was like, okay, you guys are going to go in. Do you, can I go in to edit with you with Lee Dolph acting crazy? (laughs) We're going to order food because it's four o'clock in the morning and we're working all night type of thing. And at every point, I would just learn, yeah, you know, yeah. because in one way, as a writer, you had to produce the news interviews, but then to make a show is a little bit of a different piece of production. So I got to work with these lovely, amazing people where there wasn't, and they were amazing at their job. So I was able to do that and hone my own career as a producer. And I think that that, was one of the great things at that time because we had so many things going on that everybody knew what their jobs were, but you had the opportunity to look at this and see, can I dip my hands, my toe in here? And can I learn something here and then go from there? So that's the biggest thing. And having that foundation, having that foundation in a news department that is doing everything from interstitials, weekly news show, breaking news, online, written digital news, and then documentaries where we're all using the same content, right? So we're all putting into this 
big, large space, you get to learn how to make a show from top to bottom. And that's what I've taken with me because a lot of things are like segmented now, but no, if you, you know, I can construct a show from the very beginning and take it to the very end. How do you think of the legacy of MTV News? I hope that its legacy is a valued time of documenting the culture. And and I pray that it's valued. For me, it was, such an important time to be alive. Such a wonderful time to be in the midst of a growing and flourishing creativity that is still like, I think is it's absolutely like cherished now. And I hope that the role that MTV News played in documenting that is something that is looked at as very valuable, very positive, and a cornerstone in the culture. It's really like was a special place to be. So I just pray that as we move further and further away from that time, that it will be seen as a thing that really contributed and really was at the forefront of telling the story of the culture and doing a very good job at it. You Hear It First, an unofficial and unfiltered history of MTV News is an Essential Industries podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. And visit BenjaminWagner.com for more episodes and information on our creative coaching and consulting services. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Listener.